to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Season 3 of the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Janet Somerville and Kathleen Winter. Janet taught literature for 20 years, and you can read her insightful reviews in the Toronto Star book pages. You can also find her work at your favorite local independent bookseller in the form of her acclaimed first book, Yours for Probably Always, Martha Gellhorn's Letters of Love and War, 1930-1949. A star review in Kirkus called it an engrossing collection that burnishes Gellhorn's reputation as an astute observer, insightful writer, and uniquely brave woman. Now, let's turn it over to Janet Somerville, who will introduce us to Kathleen Winter and her latest publication, Undersong. Kathleen Winter's work has been shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the Governor General's Literary Award, the Women's Prize for Fiction, the Charles Taylor Prize, just to name a few. Kathleen currently lives in the eastern townships of Quebec, and I'm so absolutely chuffed to speak with her this morning about her glorious new novel. Undersong is a stunning, spellbinding, poetic triumph that reclaims Dorothy Wordsworth on her own terms. Welcome, Kathleen. Janet, thank you. Thank you for having me. Listen, uh, thank you to the Ottawa International Writers Festival for putting us together for this conversation. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just reading a short excerpt uh, from the book and maybe setting it up. Well, the book um, is mostly narrated by the handyman, the long-time devoted handyman of the Wordsworths, but each separate section, of which there are six, is narrated by a stately old tree, a sycamore in the garden at Rydal Mount. And I'm going to read a little bit from the very beginning where the, where the sycamore talks about the handyman, James Dixon, who's just come into the garden to tell the bees in an old tradition that Dorothy Wordsworth has died. You tell the bees when a beloved person has died. So this is the sycamore speaking. And it's going to be about a minute. James Dixon's face moves in tiny, expressive ways, one moment smooth as a new loaf, and the next ruffled like wind-blown rydal water. He was far from bald in 1816 when he first came to Rydal to work for Rotha Wordsworth. Then he had a head full of wavy hair and he smells like sweet backy, a scent all the garden creatures loved, including myself, Sycamore, oldest tree of our garden. That summer was a very cold one because of a faraway event that humans here did not know about, though anyone with wings or pollen knew. Volcano. Locals knew it as the year without a summer, and were it not for James Dixon's arrival, many of us living things here in the Wordsworth Garden might not have survived. James noticed details you ought to, if you're to be of use to a garden. Small things, beautiful things, 
He worked hard and did very little harm. Kathleen, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I find the prose just enrapturing it. And, and I, you know, at the reference, and I'm going to sound like such a sycophant, but, uh, and you know me because, and you would know that I am so not a sycophant, but the reverence for the natural world, the ability to give voice to an old tree in a way that's utterly convincing. Um, Dixon's own reverence for the bees themselves, the way that he talks to them, the way he confides in them, the way he tells them and Sycamore Dorothy's truths of her heart. Um, I, I just find it so affecting. And, and I know that other readers who will come to your book uh, will, will feel the same way. Can you talk a little bit about how you alighted on these different voices. I can understand why you maybe picked James Dixon, but um, how did how did you alight on Sycamore? Well, I wrote the book by walking because the Wordsworths wrote things by walking. William paced and muttered while he paced, and they were the talk of every village that they ever lived in. Because of that, he he'd walk through nature and he'd say aloud the lines of his works and Dorothy would follow behind him and write it all down. And I decided after many attempts to, you know, sit at my computer or at a notebook, I decided to do the same thing. So I was living in Verdun at the time uh, along the river's edge of Southwest Montreal. And I would walk the St. Lawrence and there are bulrushes and reeds and there are walnut trees and there are many kinds of, you know, uh, native and invasive plants. Species. And also things from old gardens that used to be there that are no longer there. So it was a really kind of um, a wild edge, not in a Canadian sense, but in an urban sense, the same as, as in England, because one of the things as a, as a person born in England that I notice um, is always with me is the difference in what feels wild to English people and what feels wild to Canadian people. So I began speaking in the Wordsworthian manner into my phone, making sound files in Dixon's voice. But the plants and the trees around me, um, they had sounds, they had voices, they had wind whispering through them, the birds sang. And gradually they said, um, remember when your mother died and you were in the garden and the flowers said, oh, she's gone, but we remember her. Each, each kind of flower that she loved, the allison, the hollyhock, um, the gladiola, they spoke to me of my mother. And in the same way, the birches and the other trees and plants around the river began to speak to me of Dorothy. They said, we birches are the cousins of the birches around her. You know, we, um, Celandine, are the cousins of the Wordsworth Celandine. The plant species are a family, and we know her, and our voice should be in your book. It was very, very strong. It's so, it's, it's so extraordinary, uh, truly ex extraordinary. I've, I've never read another book like it, and it, it felt so wholly true emotionally and 
um, I just want to say thank you because it's also a, a different way of being in the world. It recognizes a different way of being in the world and being aware of so much more than yourself. And I think especially now when everything is so toxic and sad and painful that, that, that a story like this is a, a genuine balm you know, of, of communing with, with nature. So I'm so you. glad to hear that you felt that way reading it because it is a lonely time as well. And um, the entities, the living non-human beings around us, including from the plant kingdom or realm are our companions. So um, you have to, you have to be able to intercept what they're saying. And I mean, I'm not literate in plant ease completely. I'm not, I'm not a plant. But, but I was totally convinced, Kathleen. I mean, it, it felt to me like you could, you know, you could have had a degree in botany and um, it, it just, everything is so authentic in the book. And I think that's one of its great triumphs. Yeah, and that, that's what Dorothy was like. I mean, she didn't have a degree in botany, but her observation, and this is, this is part of the reason why I was drawn to her, and I have been all my adult life since I discovered her early journals in my early 20s. She was an artist who wrote fragmentary things about the world around her, the natural world, but it was also a, a degree of observation that I found scientific. And it wasn't until I did quite a bit of research that I realized that she had an early botanical optical glass. Um, that I love up the description pocket. of that in the book too, how it, looking into the flower, it's as if looking into the structure of a cathedral. Exactly. Yeah. So I would, all my life, I'd read these, descriptions of the flowers she was looking into. And I think, wow, there's something really architectural and um, illuminated and precise about that that isn't flowery at all. It's not flowery, it's something else. It's, it's, is it scientific? Is it spiritual? Uh, maybe it's all of those things. Yeah, I think it's all of those things. I get the impression that it's all of those things. You know, there's that other moment too where she wants to transplant a blue, and I forget which kind of flower it is, you'll remember, a blue flower, and Dixon sees her doing it, and he, he says something like, you know, blue flowers don't like to leave wherever they're from, and he takes some moss for her and wraps the moss around it to keep the roots of the flower cool so she can transport it, transplant it where she would like to, to transplant it. It's that kind of detail, Kathleen, that you know, like I, I'm right there. I, I now look yeah. at every blue flower and think, you can't move that. Well, um, yes, and that's where I, I do get my details from life. I, I make very little up. Most of what I write is, I mean, I am trained as a journalist and I am observant and I, I'm not, I'm not someone who makes up um, whole pages and chapters out of my head. So the, the gentians is the flower, the blue gentians. Thank you. Um, my companion, Jean, had uh, work in which he was asked 
to plant to transplant some gentians. So he would come home and it was a it was a an operation that took several days and he would describe it to me in detail. And so that's where I got that scene of um of someone doing that. Yeah. Well, there you are. No wonder it's convincing because it's actually true. Um, now you you talked about um becoming interested in Dorothy Wordsworth in your 20s and discovering her journals in your 20s. And I know that you spent some time with the Wordsworth Foundation transcribing her work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that happened by wonderful, exhilarating chance because um, I was in Ireland for a literary festival and I thought, well, you know, my plane ticket is taken care of. I'm going to hop over to Grasmere, visit Dove Cottage, walk in the Lake District where Dorothy walked so many miles and miles and miles, and just see if there's anything that remains to be written about her. Because I had the early journals. I, I knew um, so much about her already. I knew there were busloads of tourists going to Grasmere, and the Wordsworth Trust had done an excellent job of, you know, documenting the Wordsworth lives. I thought, you're crazy, but go there anyway, there might be something. And I met a Grasmere poet, Polly Atkin, and we were both interested in Dorothy and she was using some of Dorothy's journals, uh, the fragments in her poetry. And I was really happy to hear that. And her book is coming out in October, Polly, Atkin, um, Polly Atkin's book. So I highly recommend checking that out. But Polly said, did you know that um, along with Dorothy's famous early Grasmere and Alfoxton journals, there are later journals that she wrote when she was an older woman that have never been published. And I said, no, my goodness, I didn't know that. And Polly arranged for me to meet Jeff Cowton, the curator at the Wordsworth Trust, who unlocked a refrigerated vault and proceeded oh. to show me 11 hand-stitched by Dorothy herself, stitched journals filled with her handwriting from her 50s and 60s that had never been published. And I said to Jeff Cowton, um, have they been transcribed? And he said, no, it's the next work of the Wordsworth Trust, but we don't really have the budget. And I said, have they been photographed? And he said, yes, we have PDFs. So by the time, I mean, I couldn't sleep that night. And oh my goodness, that's how exhilarating. Yeah, so I offered to begin doing them. And um, hundreds of hours later, I've transcribed two of them for the Wordsworth Trust. And now I think they have, because it's Dorothy's 250th birthday this coming Christmas day, um, there are some academics who've become willing to pitch in and start working on all of the 11 journals. And do you transcribe two of them, you said? Yes, from oh, 1830 and 1834. Well, and, and you know, she's the age that you and I are now. You know, yeah. so there's a special kind of connection to her, I think, because of that, don't you think? Absolutely. That's what was uppermost in my mind as I looked at this work. It was the work of a woman whose early work had been revered because it related to her famous brother and whose later work written as you say, when, when she was our age, I'm 61 now, um, 
and I was 59 when I began, and that's the exact age she was when I was uh, when she was writing oh the journal. So it's it just, there's this there's this Yiddish word, Kathleen, uh, about this, and that's beshert, B-E-S-H-E-R-T, and it feels like it, it's just meant to be for you to be there to reach that poet to be introduced to those journals as yet transcribed. Like, doesn't it seem so perfectly placed for you? Yes, especially since I was born just a short ride away from Dorothy. So you're and reclaiming your own landscape in, in so yes, doing. Oh my because goodness. Wild flowers are something that you lose when you go from one terrain to a completely different part of the world, the different geology, different geological history, different plants. So um, I was back in my own childhood when I have to confess, I spent a lot of time examining wildflowers between the ages of, you know, being able to walk and eight years old when we emigrated. Your whole life has been leading to this book, it seems. That's what my father tells me. Every time we talk about it on the phone, that's exact. That's his, his exact. Really? Kathleen, Kathleen, your whole life has been leading to this book. Oh, it's so beautiful, Kathleen, honestly. So, so beautiful. So, um, how how much time did you spend in the Lake District when you went and, and saw the journals for the first time? I've been there several times, um, but it was quite brief. Um, I mean, because that first time, it was at the end of my visit. It was the day before I had a plane ticket back home that I saw the journals. Uh, and then after I got back home, they were mailed to me or emailed to me in right, digital form. So I spent a lot of time. Oh my goodness. It took a long time to decode her. I was just going to ask about her handwriting. So I know from, from working in archives myself and, and reading um, handwritten letters and journal entries and all of that, it takes some time to get accustomed to, that's whoever's writing you're looking at. And then all of, yes. all of a sudden it opens up, right? You yes, understand exactly. how they do the D, how, you, how they do the E, how the E is different from the L, right? And it exactly. just, your brain just goes, oh. It was so exciting. Yes. yes, so exciting. So I had um, blackboard paint all over the kitchen wall, which is where I wrote my ideas anyway for writing. But instead of that, I would copy uh, her handwriting. I'd copy... You know, she'd say we paid indecipherable word for yes. Turkish carpet. Yes. And I'd be like trying to convert it into currency and, you know, different things. And then I wrote it on the blackboard. I copied it on paper. What is this word? And it was all of a sudden one day I'm eating my porridge and I'm looking at the word and it floats off the blackboard. Sheepskin. We paid a sheepskin. Oh, oh I know I didn't decipher it because it wasn't in the context of what I thought of as payment. Right. right. Your brain was, was looking for an amount of money and it was actually a sheepskin. And then the world opens up. <laughs> it just, yes. Then so you know how she does double E and an SH and you put that in your little code crackers table. On <laughs> so I actually completely hand wrote both of the journals. Again, um, I made a facsimile in a, equal sized journal so that before I typed anything up, I had written it all by hand. So any words that I couldn't decipher, I had the 
image of that word in her handwriting that I had done. So the body, the body knows sometimes what a letter is if the vision, if the vision doesn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. So That's now those two transcriptions, I'm sending them to the Wordsworth Trust because they've asked me to send some um, things that are connected with the process to put in the Rydal Mount era of her life in that section of the museum. Yes. Oh, Kathleen, that's thrilling. Yes. And and will you be able to travel there to see it? Will the be will the exhibit run for a year or so? Do you think like, it'll said? run for a whole year? Yes. And the other thing I'm sending is a stitch journal because um, I do have I have a a big tarpaulin that that my companion donated to me to stitch a journal on. So I when I was a kid in England, they taught us embroidery. So I stitch things that have happened like um, the county fair or, um, you know, things to do with my writing. And the day that I discovered that James Dixon was the narrator, I embroidered his name. So there's quite a bit about the, writing oh. the novel on the stitch journal. And I'm going to send that too. It's not, it looks like something Jackson Pollock made because there's paint all over it from Jean's, um, you know, construction jobs. Right. But on top of that, there's antique napkins and handkerchiefs with my journal on it. Will you be posting an image of this anywhere? Could you? Think, <laughs> will you send it to the um, Ottawa Writers Festival to include oh, yeah, the podcast? I, yeah. Sure, an image I, because I think people would love to see that. It sounds phenomenal and so perfect in ter in terms of uh, making clear your process in in writing the book. Sure, I'll send, I do have some photographs of the individual panels with elements of the novel embroidered on them. And um, I can send them easily. How did it occur to you to do that? The stitch journal? Yes. Well, when I was a kid in England, this person came and taught us six embroidery stitches. And for some reason, I've never stopped making them ever since it's just sometimes you learn something when you're a kid that you love yes and, you and loved then it. um i i'm very interested in textile art and i'm not the inventor of the stitch journal there are people especially in scotland and in england who make them um if you look it up you can find I'm their name i'm going to look it up it sounds right up my alley though i have no talent to stitch anything i'm fascinated by it as as um as a work of art and as a an archival record, you know? Yeah, and mine is, it's folk art. It's not, I'm not a professional stitcher. It's purely out of amateur love for textile and thread and oh, documentary something. Um, so I was, I was stitching a sheep from Grasmere. It was a Grasmere sheep on the plane back from a Grasmere visit to Canada. And um, this, um, this, uh, little family was behind me um, and they were um, East Indian and the woman was completely beautifully dressed in this golden sari that had exquisite embroidery all over it. Like, I mean, you know, really exquisite. And she taps me on the shoulder because she sees me roughly stitching this Grasmere pig 
and she's laughing and she's this old dignified woman and she's laughing and she puts her hand on her heart and she, she's telling me, I love your pig. And then she points to her sari and tells me in sign that she stitched everything. And I'm just Whoa. laughing so hard because it's the same thing, only not, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Hers is so elegant but, and sophisticated. And, yes. oh. But she, she was so um, enamored with mine because, you know, we were kind of, you know, sisters in, in stitchery for oh, that so moment. lovely. It's so lovely. I love, you know, those kinds of interactions with strangers uh, are profound sometimes, aren't they? Very much so. And it joins us in our humanity uh, in an unexpected and welcome way. How, yes. how lovely, really, how, how lovely. Wow. Um, can you talk about a little bit more about your process? So we know you transcribe the journals on, on blackboard paint in the kitchen. You replicate mm -hmm. those journals in your handwriting. And this is all to get a sense of Dorothy's voice. And you watch the St. Lawrence uh, muttering in James Dixon's voice into your voice memos on your phone. I don't know if this is useful to you, but I even have a visual memo where I'm sort of documenting walking along the river. So you hear my voice and in the little video clip, you see, you see where I'm walking and muttering. Arise, you should have seen them. They darted everywhere like birds and they were deep and ah. They were like water, they were like the blackest, fastest running stream, but there was pools and tributaries that were slower and bent and went back on themselves and then gushed forwards again. People knew her eyes were the wildest ones they'd ever seen. De Quincey said it and Coleridge said it and everybody said it, but I was the one who understood where the golden things were located in that stream. Right. Well, this just seems like such an incredible, unique resource of, of material and a way of, of readers connecting even more deeply with your words. I, I don't know. It just seems remarkable to me. I can't think of anybody else who has done something like this, or I certainly don't know of anybody else who's done something like this. It's it's truly extraordinary. Well, it really helped me write the book because I had the chronology, but chronology is just helpful in a small sense because what, what this book is is not really a chronology of events, even though it is told consecutively uh, in time. James is remembering things that are, if not always in order, they're, they're usually in order of the, of the way they happened. But I can't write when I know what's gonna happen at the end. And I can't write if I have a prefabricated structure. I have to write into the unknown. So it's more organic for you, the way that the narrative actually unspools. Yeah, so I decided I'd make these sound files without at all worrying about where they go in the manuscript. So I'd make one from um, 
you know, Dorothy's younger days when James Dixon first saw her. And then I make another one from the time that she was in the little um, go-kart thing that he- Oh yes, when she can't walk and- And they'd be all jumbled up, but that's the only way I can write. I can't really, um, and, I, and I didn't know where they were gonna end up in the manuscript. So some of the things I wrote at the beginning ended up at the end. And I think all writers have different processes, but mine is that I just have to trust that whatever I'm passionate about speaking into the phone or writing that day, that little paragraph or whatever, I don't have to know what's going to happen to it. If I start worrying about where it fits in the Then that's paralyzing. I'm sunk. Yeah, it's paralyzing if you worry too much about that. I, I wanted to ask too about, um, there are these lovely little illustrations. I'm assuming that you drew them all, is that right? No, no, I do draw, but they were, um, they were uh, Jennifer Griffiths at Knopf Canada was the book designer and um, the beautiful design of the book was all arranged by her. It's, it's, it's lovely each, you know, each section with those, those drawings and also the words from Ariel's song in the Tempest. Why did you decide to use those um, throughout? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a scene that happens at Charles and Mary Lamb's place that because Charles and Mary Lamb, who were a kind of parallel writing brother and sister. Right, so Dorothy and William. Um, yeah, I mean, Charles, Charles's words, Charles's name was on the books and hers wasn't. Um, they, they wrote or rewrote Shakespeare for children and there's a, there's a section of this book that kind of refers to that. So that was a connection. But mostly, I just, those particular words that um, introduce each part of the book, it's like they blew in from gardens all over the world, from Rydal Mount, from my own garden, from any garden, from bees, from pollen, from the timelessness that is the plant world. They blew in there and just kind of settled on the page to just to be a little reminder of that golden realm of pollen and sun. Well, and I was thinking too that they, they sort of pollinate those sections, right? You know, it, I don't know. It's such an extraordinary book, Kathleen. Um, every detail matters and you know, the whole it is a sum of its parts and really is an extraordinary, extraordinary book. Can you talk a little bit about, um, maybe more specifically about uh, the setting? Because, mm -hmm. yeah, just talk a little bit more about, about the setting in the natural world. Well, when I first went to Grasmere, before I knew the journals were sitting in the, in the vault, um, I thought, one way to get to know Dorothy will be to walk where she walked. And I had been to the Lake District as a visitor, as a little girl with my family and a Volkswagen converted caravan. Um, but to go back there 
and just walk as a method of getting to know a person. Um, there was a strange thing that happened because I thought I was going to get to know that part of England, but really I kept thinking, this is a lot like Newfoundland. <laughs> this is some of these, these hills, they're called fells there, are the way the rock is, the way the shapes, they're, they're so like places very I familiar to you. Very familiar. I thought I was going to the old world, but then I realized, no, geologically they're related. They're very much related. And so it was a, the whole process of writing the book and going to that land was a sort of restitching of myself with the place from which I had been severed and also with the literary heritage of that place. And in, so that's one thing that happened on the land. Well, and also it seems to me that in, in your walks to discover who Dorothy was, you found her voice because in those fells, she discovered who she was, you know, she, she, she became fully herself in that landscape. Um, and it seems to me that from what you've just said, that that's true for you too. Yes. The natural world is really a watermark on every page of this book, not just the landscape, but um, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the old sycamore tree, the bees, and there's also this wisdom um, a spirituality about the bees that, you know, that they carry on uh, Dorothy's voice into the future. I, you know, not just Dorothy's voice, but anybody's voice who, who has been there and died, that they're still present in, in the songs of the bees and the scents of the flowers, all, all yes, of that. Part of the sycamore's voice is to talk about how this is imperiled, how it was imperiled and known to be imperiled during the Industrial Revolution of Dorothy's day, but also now. So there's little clues in the sycamore's voice, one being um, the sycamore calls this, which is their day, our little day, and says, you know, the, the bees will carry the knowledge of our little day to people who've yet to hear this story, which is the reader who's holding this book. I know it's so fantastic. And, and, the, and the sycamore also hints at a time when the work of bees will be done by tiny little um, automated mechanisms. Right. And we already have that. We already have pollinators. So imperiled that pollination is being carried on by artificial means. Um, so there are things that the sycamore hints at beyond the time of that little day into our own time. And I didn't want to belabor those points and make mm -hmm. it a kind of, um, you know, a, a proselytizing. Um, right. But I just wanted the sycamore to know and the bees to know what happens outside their own time and to sort of gently hint at it. Well, and the, and the other thing about land and landscape and Dorothy walking on that land and up to the top of that mountain is that she, she sees what she calls the bones, like the exposed stone and 
barren kind of places at the top of the mountain. And that, like other places in the book and other kinds of landscapes, becomes an externalized form of her own inner state. Because Dorothy Wordsworth, in all of her journals, she doesn't go on about I this and I that. It's not about an ego at play. It's about um, someone who is so at one with the land that she will say the grasses were desolate, the trees were unhappy if she's talking about herself. Now, part of that is a kind of psychological projection of something that she perhaps can't face, but part of it is also her complete non-I identity and merging into place and place dissolving into her and then becoming one. Yeah, it's it's absolutely astonishing how how you do that and and um, so and I keep saying this, but everything is so authentic and convincing, and it's all just part of what feels like to me as a reader the natural flow of the story. You know, I, I, I'm not taken out of the story by by any of this in any way I'm more immersed in it because that there there are these boundaries are elided um, between character and place you know with with Dorothy but also with Dixon you know so yes and his character was really most intriguing to me because he was a person who grew up as a child in the workhouse um, during the Industrial Revolution, which was very cruel to poor children. Um, and he also, though, had a really artistic sensibility, and he was a real person. And all that we know about him was that he, he did have that origin in the workhouse, and he made up little songs in his head that only he knew or a person who would be beside him as he sang them. And he also did decorate eggs with, I've seen them, the Wordsworth Trust has some after all these years. Right. They are um, painted eggs that he's then engraved feathers, birds, natural designs of the landscape into, and they are exquisite. They're called pace eggs in that district, which are a, a form of Easter egg. So he had he had something to him that really thrived on being in the Wordsworth's land of the imagination. He wasn't just a handyman. And to me, that that is a, an interesting person to um, to write. Oh, absolutely. And he's probably even more interesting to read. <laughs> you know that you had such a. a an interesting time, fascinating time writing him. That that's clear in you know as a reader, I'm I'm just in Dixon's thrall because he's not a simple man. He's a complicated man, and he's a kind man. You know, he he's so kind and thoughtful and generous uh, to Dorothy, especially mm -hmm. in her her last years when she's become so vulnerable. Yes, and I, I do know, even though there's very little documented about him, I know that he was devoted to the family and he did use his own money to buy 
iron railings that go around their graves in the little churchyard. Yes, because that's a little plot point in, in the book that he intends to do that. So. And he, um, he, um, he is also buried in that, in that. Oh, he is? Yeah. That yeah. seems so appropriate, doesn't it? Yes. So, yes. so appropriate. Um, are you comfortable talking about what you are working on now? I could talk a little bit about it. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, and it, it sort of follows from that because it's about a mountain. Um, it's going to be poetic nonfiction. It might be a form of poetry, actually, um, because the form is still evolving. But it's about a mountain near where I live now. And I go and I listen to the mountain. And it's going to be what the mountain reveals to me. Well, I cannot wait to hear that, what the mountain reveals to you and, and how you interpret what it has to say. Uh, will there be any um, visual art to go with it? Or It's so interesting that you asked that because I bought, um, I bought a watercolor tablet with slate covers. It's beautiful. It's square. And I, I go visit the mountain from different angles and I go around the perimeter and I go up it and I make a tiny watercolor um, of the mountain. Yesterday I made one and you can't even see the mountain because it's completely obscured by rain and clouds and mist. And I was going to go home again without doing it. And I thought, no, I'll paint where the mountain is and it's obscured today. So Sometimes it's a simple silhouette at sunset. Sometimes it's um, got colors, the painting, but they're tiny and I'm gonna keep doing it for the time that I write the manuscript. Well, that sounds absolutely glorious. All these little impressionistic uh, records mm -hmm. of, of those moments, you know, through your, the lens of your, eye and heart you know it just it, it sounds beautiful kathleen it sounds like something we need <laughs> in our Thank lives it really does seem like something we need in our lives so all of this connection and healing uh, and goodness that's out in the world still when it's so difficult yes. or, you know to exactly i'm so glad that Connection, healing, and goodness are in the world still. Yeah, that's, that's important. Um, are there any books that you've read recently that you'd like to lift up and just say a word or two about? That you sure. Really yes. you know, speaking of healing, um, there's, a, there's a poet I love. I, I, I tend to carry a small volume of poetry around with me these days. And um, there's, a, there's one by the Montreal Press, Metatron, um, and the poet is Jasper Avery, and she's written this whole book called uh, Number One Earth that is about the body, about healing, about um, reconnection. And it just kind of 
goes underneath pain and lifts it up and dissolves it and transforms it into something else. It's a very, very healing book. And, and Metatron is a wonderful publisher as well, along with, there's another Montreal press, um, Metonymy, and then there's, um, there's a press in Van Vancouver called Arsenal Pulp. I really like discovering poets and authors through those little presses these days. And it's through nice the to, yeah, it's really nice to be able to lift up independent presses when, when you can, for sure, because everything's so competitive for, for space, right? And to be able to lift But I up. think, yeah, I think we do have a sort of um, analog, um, a love for, you know, the, the small, the small volume that we put in our pocket and we take outside and it's got something healing in it that you can hold in the palm of your hand that might be from a tiny press these days. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, I've just started to read a book that um, will be coming out in September and it's by Maureen Gibbon and it's called The Lost Notebook of Edouard Manet. And it's about Manet's final years. And um, in the late 1800s, I think it's like 1880, 1882, something like that. And he's being treated for syphilis at this clinic in the south of France. Um, and he's quite weak, physically weak, but he is still so enamored with beauty, with the natural world. He, he befriends this um, young brother and sister, and the brother has a pet crow, and... There's this beautiful rapport between them, and he catches the crow in flight and sketches the crow in flight. And I think that sounds so good. Of, I think it's totally up your alley. The Lost Thank you. Notebook of Edouard Manet. So out September 7th from, from Norton, W.W. W. Norton. So um, anyway, we're at the end of our time here, and I, I just want to encourage people who've been listening to treat yourself to a copy of Kathleen Winter's Under Song from your favorite independent bookstore or, and ask for it at your local library. Make sure it's on the circulation shelves there um, and spread the word. It is a magnificent book and it will make you feel better about the world. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thank you, Janet. It's been a really lovely conversation. That was Janet Somerville in conversation with Kathleen Winter about her latest novel, Undersong. Interested listeners can visit the page for this event on our website to see a photograph of the journals described in the conversation. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.